So let's take our Bibles again. Let's turn together this portion of God's Word. 2 Samuel and chapter number 10. And with the, with the Word of God before us, let's bow together again in prayer. Let's seek for the Lord's help as we come to consider the Word of God tonight. Let's all pray. Eternal God, we come again into thy presence and we're mindful of the need that we have to understand these portions of Scripture. We think, O oh Lord, of some of the unusual circumstances, reading again of battles and victories. And dear Father, in it all, we want to see the Savior. We want to see Christ in all the Scriptures. And as we see our Savior, we pray you'd help us to, to love Him, to serve Him. Give us, O oh Lord, the grace to rightly apply the Word of God. So you know every hearer tonight, those in the building, those watching on, may the word come as a word in season, a word for the weary. Be pleased to bless and encourage every soul, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. When you come to a portion like this, it is generally useful to ask questions as to why this story is here in the wider record it's one of those accounts that actually some men, as they write of the life and times of David, just pass over. Uh, they see the benefits of the account of Mephibosheth. Uh, they see, again, the importance of the sin of David Bathsheba. And chapter 10, sitting between these, these accounts are often passed over with very little comment. And yet, of course, it is here as part of God's inspired and inerrant word. And therefore, we've got to shake ourselves continually and say, well, Lord, you have something for us to learn here tonight. And rather than moving quickly into chapter 11, uh, I think it is important that we see what God is teaching us here. You see, this is, of course, part of God's inspired word, and therefore, it is in the right place in God's ordering of the record. It's here in purpose. It's also worth noting that the writer himself has an intention as he puts this portion in the word of the Lord. Now, undoubtedly, it sets the scene for what follows. Chapter 11 and 12, we're going to deal with the account of the wars with the Ammonites. You've got there verse number 1 of chapter 11, and it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab, and then on and so on, and they destroyed the children of Ammon. And so the conflict with Ammon begins in chapter 10, continues in chapter 11 and following, and you see the importance of this chapter in setting the scene for what follows. We go from chapter 10, verse 1, that the king of the children of Ammon has died. There's a new king in place, and we know David's intent. We'll see that later on in the account. In verse number 6, the children of Ammon saw they stank before David, and the wars begin and continue, even in chapter 11. But there is also not only a link going forward, but there's a fascinating link going back into chapter 9. Remember in chapter 9, we saw again the kindness that David shows to the house of Jonathan for Jonathan's sake. And we took time to consider this word, this word has said, that speaks of the kindness of God, the kindness of God that David then shows to Mephibosheth. Well, that same word is used in verse number 2 of chapter 10. Then said David, I will show kindness. 
and to Hanun the son of Nahash. Again, leaving aside this matter of him reciprocating the kindness his father showed to him, we do again see that David as a king is intent on showing kindness. It's a reign of kindness, a reign of mercy, loving kindness, the said of God coming through David, his righteous king. Kindness. And the response of kindness gives us yet another insight into the kingdom of David and through that insight into the kingdom of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. His reign is a reign of kindness. A reign displaying kindness to lost humanity. We took the time tonight to sing repeatedly the songs that indicate the kindness of Christ toward sinners. And so we see here something of the kindness of Christ in picture form. Now remember, please, as we go through this portion, that we're going to see things that are not always going to fit together. The types, a little like parables, are not full pictures of everything that could be said. And so there are things that are here in this portion that that we will not extrapolate towards Christ. But the principles are there, and the principles are taught consistently through the Scriptures. And so with care and understanding, I trust we will see, that this does afford us information regarding the Messiah's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. So what my plan is tonight, you will see in your outline that there are six main headings. That seems to be a lot. But I also must give you another word of warning. My plan tonight is to go through all six headings and then go through them again. Okay, so when you get to number six, you're like, oh, look at the time, we're almost done. Do not be deceived. We're going to go back to number one and we're going to go through them all again. So in essence, I didn't want to do this, there are 12 points in tonight's message. For that reason, we will go very, very quickly. If I take five minutes on each, 12 times five, Another hour to go. Do, do not fear. Number one, we see, first of all, the sincere kindness of David, the heart of David. I've said to you already, verse number one gives us the historical background. The king of the children of Ammon has died, and a new king, Hanan, his son, is reigning in his stead. And David reasons within himself, verse number two, that he plans to show kindness unto Hanan, the son. Now, we're not told exactly as what happened in the past whereby Hanan's father shows kindness to David. It may well have been the case during some of the chases around the country when Saul was trying to get David that in some way Hanan or some way Nahash had shown kindness unto David. Whatever the case may be, David's purpose and intent is to comfort the son in his grief and to show an act of kindness to him for the sake of his father. That's his intent. Now I use the word sincere. Because what we're going to see secondly. Is the Ammonites are suspicious regarding this act. The suspicious thoughts of the Ammonites. And we do understand. That their suspicion is not grounded. And from that we can then go back to the first thing. And say that David's heart was indeed sincere. He was not pretending to be kind. He was genuine in his desire to show kindness to the Ammonites. But they are suspicious. In essence, verse number three, they say, really? 
This is some plan and plot and scheme. These men are coming in a pretense, in a show of reflecting David's kindness. David doesn't come. He sends his servants. And so the suspicion is these servants, they're not here for our good. They're here to spy out the city and to overthrow it. There's nothing in the text to indicate that that was indeed David's intent. The whole thing marks is marked by the sincerity of David in showing kindness, which leads in the third place to the shameful treatment of David's men. Verse number four, Hanan took David's servants, shaved off one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. I don't think I need to dwell upon this very much. This is indeed a shameful act. These men return, they're exposed, and they are embarrassed. In any culture, this would be tremendously offensive. But in a culture that, pre- that, that had this honor upon the beard, and again, this is a mark of tremendous disrespect. You know what it says there, verse number 5, the men were greatly ashamed. They'd been made a mockery of, and that is indeed a shameful practice. So what happens next? Well, it is clear very quickly, verse number 6, the children of Ammon saw they stank before David. There's understanding again amongst the people that what they have done to David's men has rightly not been well received. And David is about the honor of his men. Again, just in passing, when we see Christ here, it is worth taking some time. Just to remind ourselves in passing that Christ values the honor of his children. And when we're mocked by the world, Christ knows that, feels that, and is determined to vindicate the cause of his people. Here we see David is going to vindicate his men. He's not allowing the men to be humiliated without there being a response. And so justice in this righteous king, justice reigns, and the righteous king is going to avenge Again, the ill treatment of his men. And the Ammonites know that. And what do they do? Well, they call for the Syrians. And so it is this secular alliance of the king. These kings come together. They have no thought of God in all of their ways. And in a secular mind, they come together to do battle against the Lord's people. The Syrians are mentioned there, 20,000 footmen. The king of Mahag, also 1,000 men. And the kings of Ishtob, 12,000 men, this entire company coming against David and the men. David hears it, verse 7, and sends Joab and all the host of the mighty men. This is the secular alliance of the kings. Which leads, fifthly, to the super challenge that comes from Joab. The situation, of course, is very, very grave. A great company of men, and they find themselves, and they're closed around. Verse number 9, the front was before and behind. They are surrounded in this battle by these various armies. And what are they to do? Well, there is wise strategy. They divide the armies into two. There's a determination to help each other in the battle. If the Syrians are too strong, then we'll help you. If the Ammonites are too strong, then I'll come and help you, verse number 11. But in it all, there is this striking, sober challenge that comes from Joab, verse 12. Be of good courage. And let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. And the challenge comes. And God is pleased to vindicate the cause of his people here. 
Joab drew nigh, verse number 13, and the people that are with him on the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. There's that initial victory, and then the Syrians, again, they gather themselves together, verse 15 and following, and there's a, for, a further victory, a, a remarkable victory, verse number 18. The numbers of those that were slain of the Syrians, again, the ungodly alliance had come. They had gathered with the wrong people. They had fought against the Lord God, Jehovah. And they find themselves suffering the consequence of their alliance. I told you we go fast. That's the first run through those six headings. And at the end of all of that, what do you see? Well, surely you see the judgment of God falling upon the ungodly. They face the wrath of God, the wrath of David, having neglected his kindness. That's the theme. You see the ungodly suffering the wrath of the king, having neglected the kindness of the king. And in that sense, we see a clear type and picture of Christ Jesus. So let's go back to number one. And having thought about the sincere kindness of David, it is important that we think of the sincere kindness of Christ. Christ comes into this world showing to us the sincerity of God's kindness to mankind. That is part of the very character of God. He is sincere in His overtures of kindness. Now, there is a general kindness of God. Go to Luke chapter 6, please. Luke chapter 6. And in Luke 6, we see the general kindness of God mentioned here. In verse number 35, we're told to love our enemies and do good, lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he that is the highest, that is the Lord, he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Again, that's a very remarkable text. Because it's drawing upon the language of the said of the Old Testament, the loving kindness of God. And God in His loving kindness shows, un, shows, shows that kindness to those who are unthankful and those who are evil. If you like, God today shows His kindness to the Ammonites. In a very general way, He shows His kindness as He provides. And the rain falls and the sun shines upon the just and upon the unjust. I don't know what your week will involve, but we're coming towards Thanksgiving. This is a really good text for Thanksgiving. I don't know if you're interact with the ungodly. Perhaps you'll be in some store and you'll see someone grabbing their turkey. Uh, perhaps their green beans for that green bean casserole that I mentioned in the nursing home. It's fantastic, by the way. Uh, and they're doing all of that for Thanksgiving, but they don't know the Lord. So, what are they about? Who are they thanking? What are they involved in? Well, you have the opportunity to say, you know, the Lord is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. The Lord shows mercy to those who do not acknowledge Him, who live in their own ways, but they determine, so they, they all, they'll, they'll enjoy a good feast day, but they do not acknowledge God in all of their thoughts. But the Lord is kind. And then you could then turn them to Romans chapter 2, that the kindness of God is intended to lead to repentance. See, God is generally kind, but there is a gospel kindness. That's the common kindness of God. 
But the gospel kindness of God. Turn to Titus chapter 3, please. And in Titus chapter 3, we see this, in this matter of the kindness of God that comes in Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 3, in the verse number 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Without going into that text any further, please note that there was a point in time in human history when the kindness of God appeared. It did not begin. God is eternally kind. We saw last week, God is the God of loving kindness before time began. But here we see there's a point in time when the kindness of God appears. And of course, it is a reference to the coming of Christ into the world. That as Christ comes in the incarnate form of Jesus, as the Messiah comes in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that is a display of the kindness of God. And what happens? The angelic host, they sing the song to the shepherds. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Did you hear that? Goodwill toward men. Why? Because Christ has come, because God has sent His Son. The kindness of God has appeared. A sincere kindness. God's will that sinners be converted. God's desire being realized as Christ comes into the world to draw sinners unto Himself. Now we know that the general kindness of God is towards all men, but the gospel kindness of God is particular towards His people. But when you see the gospel going forward in Christ's life, there's a general offer of the kindness of God that comes. You see, go back, please, to Matthew chapter 11. We were here this morning. We saw, again, the importance of the Christ's authority, all things delivered unto him by his Father. Verse 27, the whole portion dealing with the issue of how some people know the Lord and others don't. The whole issue of Capernaum, exalted unto heaven, verse number 23, but brought down to hell in judgment. The mighty works that have been done in them, if they've been done in Sodom, they had remained until this day. And the judgment that will come upon the cities of Christ's day, miracles done, but they've neglected the word. And the Lord says, verse number 25, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. So in the context, the Lord Jesus is not speaking only to a company of the elect. The context makes it very clear. He's speaking to a mixed company some of whom are going to face the judgment of God, some of whom these things have been hid, others it's been revealed to them. And in that company, you get the words of verse number 28 coming as a sincere offer. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The kindness of God in Christ Jesus being offered to sinners generally and sincerely. You know, there are some, in what we might term a hyper-Calvinistic grouping, who understand correctly that the gospel's efficacy only comes to the elect. And if they suggest, as we would teach the free off of the gospel, they say that such must not be sincere. 
that if God's intent is only to save the elect, then any general offer must not be sincere. But no, that is not true. The kindness of God is such that anybody who petitions Christ for kindness will receive that kindness. And anybody who comes to Christ will indeed be given the rest. It is general in that sense. And we can say it, we could go to Philadelphia, stand on the top of the, of the art museum on those steps, a great company on Thanksgiving Day, and we could say to that entire company, not knowing anything about them, that if they come to Christ, they'll be saved that day. We can freely announce the gospel offer because Christ sincerely is kind towards sinners that if they come to him, he will gladly receive them. That is the sincerity of Christ's kindness. You see, Christ here in Matthew, 7, Matthew 11 is clearly giving an offer to the entire company. He knows that in that company, some will receive and some will reject. But the sincerity of the offer should not be doubted. Christ is sincere in what he says. And to say anything less is a terrible thing to say against our Savior. You see, we see the same thing over in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, again, we have another company, a mixed company. And in John chapter 6, we know at the end of the account, there are those who go away. They find the Lord's sayings too hard. They leave. They leave the Lord. They're following, they're following for the wrong reasons, carnally. But of that company, John chapter 6 and the verse number 34, they said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now their minds, their minds are physical. They, they want food in their stomachs. But the Lord says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. To those who want bread for the wrong reasons, the Lord says to them, I am the bread of life. And any that come to me shall never hunger, and those that believe in me shall never thirst. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a message to bring to a lost world. And we should gladly tell people that if they take Christ, they will be saved. If they feed upon Christ, they will never hunger. If they drink of Christ, they'll never thirst. Christ is glad to give them comfort and rest in all of their sin troubles. That is the sincere heart of our Savior. But as you know, the world treats Christ's servants with suspicion. That's what happens, isn't it? Often seen, people are doubtful regarding religion. They say, well, you're, you're religious. You call yourself a servant of Christ. And they presume the desire of the church is to control them and manipulate them. They don't believe the church is concerned for their good. It's about control, not freedom. They think the church is harmful, not helpful. And they deny the need for Christ's kindness. We do live in such a day. People presume the worst of the church. You, you teach morality, you teach law, you teach God's will. All you want is money. All you want is to control the nation. You want the nation to live the way you want the nation to live. The church is all about control. Without ever seeing the fact that the church is here to proclaim the kindness of Christ Jesus. 
that we're here to offer Christ to a lost world. And their suspicions are ungrounded. As long as we are faithful to the word of God, we're not here to spy the world. We're here to help the world for Christ's sake and to show kindness for Christ's sake. As David's servants, as Christ's servants, that is our purpose. But they treat us with suspicion and they deny their need for Christ's kindness. And so we then see in the third place that we are often shamefully treated for the sake of our king. You know, David didn't suffer these indignities. The servants suffered them on David's behalf. It's an interesting picture regarding what the church suffers. You see, we see the Lord's enemies. They seek to hurt the king's subjects. Christ is in heaven. And so what happens is that those who hate the Lord, they seek to hurt his subjects. As he turned across to John 17... Because the Lord in his prayer, we saw this prayer this morning, the Lord in this prayer highlights again that that's what's going to happen. Verse number 14, as he speaks initially to the 12 or the 11 apostles, I have given them my word, and the world hath hated them. Now, what is the word that Christ has given the apostles? It is the very kindness of God. They are the messengers of the goodness and the grace of God's And yet the world hates them. They hate the message of the kindness of God. Verse 14. Because they are not of the world. Again, we are those who go into Ammon with the kindness of Christ Jesus, but we're not of Ammon. And the Ammonites hate us because we're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Then verse 15, sorry. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You know, one of the mad confusion of today is the servants of Christ Jesus going into Ammon and wearing the Ammonites' clothing and talking to the Ammonites and behaving like the Ammonites and presuming that will help them in the work with the Ammonites. But that's not the case. With a message of kindness that the Ammonites need to hear. And as they hear that message, then these things come to pass. And yet Christ says, verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. We are the ambassadors of Christ Jesus. And it is our glad delight and privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. Well, what happens? Well, warfare engaged. And what happens is there is this ongoing secular alliance of the kings. You know, one of the things you see in 2 Samuel chapter 10 is the second psalm coming to fulfillment. Turn please to Psalm 2. Because this is something that takes place many, many times in the history of redemption. As the Lord's people go forward with the Lord... They face the opposition of the world. But what often happens in the world is there are these secular unholy alliances. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and listen, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Here's a secular alliance 
that we as the Lord's people must expect in this evil age. It shouldn't surprise us that nations of the world come together and seek to promote things that are against the word of God. There's only two kingdoms. You know, with this idea that there's, there's all of these kingdoms of the world, there's only two. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness is always opposed to the kingdom of light. They do not coexist in peace. They coexist in war. And the kingdom of darkness will continue to wage war against the kingdom of light. Uh, I'm not talking about swords, of course. I'm referring to spiritual warfare. And those who are of the kingdom of darkness will conspire together. They agree in their darkness. You're dark, I'm dark, let's go against the light. And so what we see, what we see across the world, the promotion of all manner of ungodly agendas with regards to marriage, with regards to life and abortion, all of these things are promoted. Evolution is accepted across the world against the Lord and against His anointed. You think of world religions. World religions are one. You say, well, Islam's not Buddhism. It's not Catholicism. But none of them are true. And so they come against the church, against Christ's faithful witnesses. You see, Psalm 2 is not just an Old Testament psalm. When actual kings come together and take counsel, Psalm 2 is taken by the apostles in Acts chapter 4 when they are persecuted for preaching Christ. And the authorities bring the men in for questioning. And they're told to stop preaching. They come and they pray through Psalm 2, indicating that we today must also pray through Psalm 2. And reckon with the fact that we live in a day when there are these all manner of these secular alliances against the church of Christ. Have you prayed Psalm 2 recently? When COP comes together and does all their climate stuff? When the nations of the world come together and say that people must believe this or do this or practice this? Have you prayed through Psalm 2 for the good of the church? You should do. Fifthly, let's note the sober challenge that comes from Joab. In light of such hostility, in light of all of this confusion and the aggression that comes, we find ourselves hearing the challenge that comes from Job. We have good courage. And let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God, and the Lord do that which seemeth him good. I understand that as God's people we have a little bit of unease regarding the fact that this comes from Joab. Joab is less than honorable in the Scriptures. But on this occasion, he acts courageously and wisely. He's the one in this entire chapter. Again, you kind of scratch your head. How can this be? In the entire chapter, Joab is the one that thinks about the Lord. He thinks about the Lord in terms of the cities of our God. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. These words, I believe, are a clear picture of life as part of Christ's army. They are a rallying call for all of us tonight. That if we were to be part of Christ's army, this is what we must be. 
We must be of good courage. And we must play the men for our people. It's a picture of what it is to serve the Lord. Paul, in a similar way, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Faith, quit ye like men, be strong. Of course, this language taken by Hugh Latimer, as he burned at the stake beside his friend and colleague, play the man, Master Ridley. And we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never put out. Play the man. It speaks of our need to be courageous. Courageous. You see, we are living in times of hostility. And young people, please be courageous. Courage is not bravado. There's a difference. Bravado, jumping off a cliff with a bungee cord strapped to your ankle. That's bravado. Courage is doing what's right no matter the cause. Courage is facing hostility and not taking a step backwards in the face of such hostility. Courage. Courage is saying Christ is your Lord when the world says no. And so whatever goes forward in the days to come, we must be those who are of good courage. And as we do so, we must be considerate of others. That's here. Let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. You see, as a church, we've got to buy into the collective. We've got to realize that we're not just living for ourselves, but we must be considerate for others, realizing that our actions impact others around us. When we faint, we discourage others. And when we are courageous, we encourage others. When we fall back, we bring discouragement to the Lord's people. But when we press on, we encourage others to press on in the same regards. And so it is with a desire to be courageous that we then help our people and the cities of our gods. That's what it is to serve in the Lord's army. You see, turn across, please, Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, we see this sense of this matter that we are fighting with each other, for each other, for the good of each other. I remember turning to this portion, very important in the light of the pandemic, when we found ourselves struggling to meet properly and how we can meet properly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and much the more as you see the day approaching. And in not forsaking the assembling, what are you doing? Verse number 24, you're considering one another to provoke unto love and to good works. I wish I had known to preach this in the beginning of March 2020. The church has definitely lost out in the importance of the gathered assembly. Meeting together to encourage each other. You see, as we forsake the assembling ourselves together, we encourage others to forsake the assembling ourselves together. But as we are faithful, so we encourage others. We provoke them into love and to good works. And we teach each other and we lead each other and we encourage each other in the work. It is not easy to serve the Lord in a fallen world. This world is so much against a spiritual mindset. You know, what do you hear in your news continually? Continually. 
secular agenda after secular agenda. And we find ourselves, we are living in a fallen world that is difficult, financially difficult, relationally difficult. It's a challenge to live in a fallen world. And you're being told, this is so difficult, difficult, difficult. And what's the Christian's answer? We set our affections on things above. And where do we do that? In here. In here, we recalibrate our thinking. In here, we get ourselves our focus right again. And we remember that, yes, it's really difficult out there right now. But this world is not our home. We are going to a heavenly city. And we come together and we praise our eternal God. And we don't have CNN and Fox News playing on a big screen. Because this book governs our minds. And we help each other in that regard. Be courageous for the good of the people and for the cities of our God. Consideration. It's also a call to cooperation. If the Syrians be too strong for me, then please come and help me. Don't you see the application here? Your battle is not my battle. The same foe But the foe is divided into different areas. And you may find yourself in a conflict and you are struggling. And you need to put your hand up. Right now it feels that the enemy is too strong for me. Can you come and help me? Don't suffer, don't flounder in the battle when you find yourself being defeated against defeat. And continually you find yourself getting weaker and weaker and weaker. It's a time in the church call for help. Lord, help me through your people. Use your people. And so, Abishai, you're struggling. Joab, I'm right behind you, and I'm going to strengthen you. And so, that's the joy of cooperating in the Lord's work. That will help each other in the battle. And then at all, we are content to leave the outcome to the Lord. Some people think that the end of verse number 12 is unbelief in Joab's part. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. This idea that he's not really confident in the battle. But it's a rallying call. He's he's not in a second. He's not trying to discourage the people. He's trying to lead them on. But he understands he has no particular promise. They don't have that here. The outcome's in God's hands. And in our church life, we've got to remember that. Calvin says this, We see therefore that Job's uncertainty was not lack of faith. For we can certainly doubt, although we embrace the promises of God, and hold them as absolutely certain and infallible. What we doubt are the things which are not clear to us. That is how he wants us to remain in suspense about many things and leave, to, leave it all to secret counsel and providence. Now here I tell you, dear child of God, is wisdom regarding church life. We are to be courageous, not compromise. We are to serve in cooperation and consideration. But we must be content to leave the outcome of our courage to the Lord. There are so many factors that govern church growth and church health. In essence, be faithful. And the Lord do that which seems good to him.
That's a hard lesson to learn. We live in a world that is results-driven. And we serve in a church where, again, we compare ourselves with others and we look around and we say, well, what's happening here and there? Nothing. Be of good courage. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. He is not unwise in his care for this local church. He is only doing what is good for this local church. But as we wrestle with this world and with spiritual forces, let not our courage flack, but rather let us press on and the Lord do that which seemeth him good. Which leads finally to the vindication of God, the solemn judgment of the ungodly. You see, ultimately, those that despise the Lord's anointed will face the judgment of the king. We are living, again, amongst those for whom sin reigns, and they need the mercy of Christ. We offer them that mercy, but they despise the mercy, and they remain in their sin. And they are not at peace with the king. Verse 19 that ends with they made peace with Israel and served them. That is what the ungodly ought to have done at the very beginning of all this. But they fought against David and his king. Or they fought against David and his men. And had they sought for peace with David, they would not have come under the judgment of David. And so it is for the fallen world, we are those who tell them that Christ is willing to make peace with them. But they reject his kindness. And the warning is that the solemn judgment of the Lord will eventually come. It's a story in time and history. But like all of these Old Testament stories, they are given to us to encourage us, to instruct us. That we see Christ in the way of faith. And may the Lord be pleased to speak to our hearts tonight. Let's bow together, please, in a word of prayer. Eternal God and Father, we thank you again for the word. Oh, Lord, help us to think these things through clearly. And particularly when it comes to your life as a church, help us, oh Lord, to be of courage, to play the man, to stand fast in the faith, to not fall back, but to help each other, to encourage each other, that, dear Father, we would see progress in the kingdom of God. Grant us, in our times, grant us times of success. When, as we offer Christ's kindness, the unconverted hear it, and they are indeed led to repentance. Draw sinners to Christ Jesus. Have mercy on those who have heard the overtures of grace and rejected those overtures, we pray. You have mercy upon them. In this day of grace, see the multitude of sinners. And bless our hearts together tonight. Take us home in safety. And indeed, may your blessing rest and abide upon us in Christ's name. Amen.